Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we know that every time um, that your word is opened and, and we read it and hear it, you are present with us, speaking to us. And so, um, awestruck by that reality, we ask for your help. We ask that you would help our hearts to hear what you, our God, has to say to us. We ask that you would help me uh, to speak clearly and faithfully, uh, that we might be the church you call us to be, that we might be the, the people of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, um, as we begin this new series that Nick already mentioned, I want to begin by talking about... Uh, Probably one of the greatest challenges, I think, is part of Christianity. Um, Christian, Christian, there's a number of things about the Christian faith that's challenging. Perhaps if you think about what makes it difficult to be a Christian, one of the things that occurs to you might be just the, the challenge of believing in a God and in his love, even though you can't see him, even though you can't experience it in a tangible way. And I agree, that's hard. But this morning I want to talk about something that I think perhaps, I think goes even deeper, not only in the challenge of believing, but actually following Jesus. And that is Jesus' teaching that we see throughout our passage in the upcoming weeks, I think, that the only way to truly live in is through dying. So Jesus, as, as, as Nick said earlier, is um, preparing his disciples this is the very last night before he goes to the cross. And shortly thereafter, he will leave them and ascend. And, and he has said to them at the very you know, beginning of this passage where he says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. I'm getting you ready. And they're bewildered, they're confused. But what Jesus is especially getting them ready is by helping them to understand the life that follows after a certain kind of death. And he's actually been preparing them for this even before that. A few days before this upper room discourse, a few days before this final meal, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and, and he tells them this. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm not a farmer, my guess is most of you are not either, but I think I understand the basic illustration that as long as the, 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 the grains of wheat are part of the wheat stock, they remain whole, they remain entire, but they remain inert. It is only when that seed falls and allows itself to fall to the ground and when it is absorbed by the ground and actually the shell begins to disintegrate, only then can life spring up from it and much fruit is born. And Jesus, first and foremost, is talking about himself. He is saying that for him to bring life, he will first choose to allow himself to die. As, like a seed falling to the ground, he goes to his death. Through that, he will bring much life. But when he's saying these things to his disciples, he's not only talking about himself. Because he goes on to say in the very next verse, whoever loves his life, whoever, he's not just talking about himself anymore, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There is a paradox to this life, Jesus says. There is a surprise. There is, we might say, two kinds of life. The this world life and eternal life. The eternal life that is the true life. And he says anyone who seeks to hold on to the this world life will never experience life as it's meant to be. The only way to true life is by letting go of the this world life. He goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and the Father will honor him. The way to experience the Father's honoring, the way to experience life as it is meant to, is by hating the this world life. The way to truly living, Jesus says, is through a kind of dying. Now, if you're finding that hard to kind of understand, to get your mind around, you're not alone, this is the confusion that the disciples are feeling the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed, the night that he speaks in this upper room discourse. By the time we get to our passage, things have already been just utterly bewildering for his disciples. The disciples and he have come in to have Passover meal, and there's this glaring omission as they enter through the doors. There is no servant to wash their horribly dirty feet. And none of the disciples, though this is an important thing, because this is going to be an uncomfortable situation, none of the disciples volunteer to step in the gap. And it's understandable why. This is a miserable job. One commentator speaking about foot washing writes, foot washing in the ancient world was a menial task. It involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrements, which was tipped out of the houses into the streets, and animal waste which was left on country roads and town streets. The task of washing these feet was therefore normally assigned to slaves or servants of the very lowest status. Of course the disciples wouldn't do it. And then their jaws drop as Jesus stands up and takes off his cloak and wraps a towel around himself. And with a bucket goes to each disciple and literally wipes off the crap and the stink from under their toenails until their feet are clean. And the disciples are cringing. This is such an awkward thing. This, this shouldn't be. They have no idea why Jesus has done this. He actually says, do you understand what I've just done for you? And the answer clearly is, no, they don't. And their, and their confusion doesn't get any less as a little bit later... After a strange interaction between Jesus and Judas, where Judas just walks out the door as Jesus sees him leave, and once he's left, he says, now, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified. That's how our passage begins. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And what he's speaking about here, for those who understood and remembered the Old Testament, he, he's talking about a pivotal prophecy in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision that's recorded centuries before this takes place. Where after you see the mess of, of human warfare and empire and all of the corruption of rulers and all that kind of thing, there's this, there's this moment that takes place where someone that's described like the Son of Man ascends into heaven with the clouds and he's ushered into the presence of God himself. And God gives to this extraordinary man, which is described as power and glory and authority. He has given a kingdom and evil is defeated and the world is saved. That is what Daniel speaks of. And Jesus, when he's saying now, now is the Son of Man glorified, he is saying this is happening now. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the Son of Man was one of the ways he would speak of himself repeatedly. He was regularly, whether people understood it or not, and it seems like most often they didn't, he was saying, this is me, I am that person who will bring everything about. But the strange thing is, whenever he speaks of, of, of being lifted up, of ascending into glory, what seems to be that Daniel 7 moment, it always seems like Jesus is talking about his death. And here we see Jesus saying, as Judas is leaving, now, it's, now it is. Now it's beginning. The Son of Man is now being glorified. Now what is he talking about? What is it making this moment important? Well, we know Judas has left. And when he leaves, he is kicking into motion a lot of horrible things. Each one worse than the one before. He goes to betray Jesus. Jesus will soon be arrested. He will be abandoned. He will be falsely accused. He will be mocked. He will be stripped naked. He will be beaten. And then he will be humiliated beyond our even ability to comprehend as he is put to death on the cross. One writer, Fleming Rutledge, speaks of this. He said, Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. Jesus is saying, now it is. Now, as I am going to the lowest possible moment, I am ascending into the glory. I am receiving my kingdom. It's a paradox. And it's only going to be later that the disciples will finally connect the dots and realize that the strange thing that Jesus did with washing the feet and the strange enigmatic statement that Jesus was making here was talking about one and the same thing. That when Jesus stooped down to clean those dirty, stinky feet, he was showing them ahead of time what he was about to do on the cross. That however much shame they might be feeling, there was even greater shame, and he was going to stoop low enough to clean them completely. That that was what was going to happen. He was doing this out of love for them. And when Jesus then says, now is the Son of Man glorified, he is helping them and seeking to help them to understand that what looks like failure is victory. That what looks like weakness is actually the pathway to strength. That what looks like humiliation 
is glory. Jesus is saying, the pathway to life I am walking down will be through death, but to eternal life. This is what Jesus is saying, is what I will do out of love for you. And then after telling his disciples this, what does he say to them next? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also must love one another. Do you understand how intense that statement is? Love one another just as I have loved you. A little while earlier when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, he, he says, in the way that I have washed your feet, so you must also do for one another. And here he says, after saying that he is going to go to the cross and be glorified through it, he says, this is how you are to love one another. In other words, he's saying, as I'm showing you with a foot washing, as I'm telling you in the statement, my point is not only to explain what I'm about to do. My goal is to give you a pattern, a template. This is not just my way. This is the way of those who follow me. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it will do nothing. But if it falls, it will bear much fruit. That is my calling for you, to love each other in this life-giving love in the very way that I have loved Jesus said, the way that Jesus loves is a love where he is, he is giving himself over to love. That is his way. No matter how much it costs, Jesus is one who chooses to go through humiliation so that he might bring honor to those who are shamed. He, he goes through discomfort and lets go of this life of ease so that he can bring ease and comfort to those who are suffering. He gives his life itself so that he can bring life to those who are dying. And he says, follow me. This is the way. And I have to say, just kind of to interject in this moment, that the more I have sat with just this simple statement that probably many of us have heard again and again, love one another as I have loved you, I have found myself deeply unsettled by. Because it occurs to me, as I've thought honestly about it, that, that so much of my life, I think, is oriented around holding at bay unpleasantness, fighting discomfort, trying to protect myself from suffering. Not, not at a conscious level. It's not like every morning I wake up and say, how am I going to avoid suffering today? That's, that's not how it works, right? But it's, it's these different little moments that something kind of breaks through the armor and I'm reminded how I'm failing at this project and I respond with this fight or flight instinct that it shows me what I am doing. It doesn't take much. Like if for some reason we found the leak, the roof would be leaking, I think in that moment I would start spiraling and like, oh no, what am I gonna do about this? Or if we get like some surprising hospital bill that we weren't planning on budgeting, it can change my mood. If, if I experience some sort of symptom, like something going on in the stomach that feels weird and I'm worried about it, during nighttime I might not be able to sleep. In each of these fight or flight reactions, and maybe you understand them as well, what are they saying? They're saying, I am trying to protect myself from all suffering and I am failing. 
You might ask, why is that a problem? Of course we don't want suffering, but here's the difficulty. That, that posture, that, that movement, that force that oftentimes derives and drives me is not a good fit with living the life of love. Because to love means to allow ourselves to suffer. To, loving, to love can be exhausting. It means bearing each other's burdens. It means opening ourselves up to other people hurting us. Yet on the other hand, what kind of life is a life without love? C.S. Lewis rightly writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. R wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. There is a kind of life that we can try to live that can protect us against all unpleasantness and exhaustion and discomfort, but, but is it really a life at all? This is what I think part of at least what Jesus is saying when he says, whoever loves his life loses it. If we hold on, if we protect, if we resist all kinds of, of difficulty and in doing so resist love, we lose the very thing we are longing. The only way to live is through dying. That, that's what that Jesus is, is calling to. He is, he, he is inviting us to do what is very contrary to every instinct within us. To realize that the way by gaining is giving. The way by having what we want involves losing. And I have to say, on one hand, I'm convinced that he is right. And maybe we are too. And, and, and the life that he's talking about, the life of giving even when it costs in love towards others, that to me is beautiful and is what I long for. And yet the reality is, as I've just said, every instinct in me fights against this. And I wonder if that's true of you as well. The truth is, it is not within us to love in the way that Jesus calls us to love. Which is why, if we are wanting to understand what's going on in this passage, we need to recognize that there's an even deeper kind of death that we are called to, to be able to experience that richer kind of life. Not only is there a death of self-protection, but there is, we might say, death of the very project of self itself. So after Jesus has said these things, after he has called people to love one another, and a short while after, we see what seems like an encouraging response from Peter. Did you notice this? You know, Peter, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has been asking for? He's been saying, I am going to the cross and I'm going to call you to follow. And Jesus says, and Peter says, I'll do it. 
And yet, how does Jesus respond? He, he says, no, you won't. In fact, before it's tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. And in fact, Peter probably should have been prepared for this a little bit because right before that, Jesus says, you cannot follow me. Not just to Peter, but to all the disciples. You cannot yet follow me. Follow me where? Follow me to the cross. Where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will be able to follow afterward. Jesus is saying that there is something that is going to have to happen. There is a change that is going to take place before his disciples will be ready to follow him. He's actually been indicating something very similar already when we go back to the scene of the foot washing when Jesus is stooping down and washing their feet. He is pointing to the cross and trying to teach his disciples of something deep and important that they need him to do this. That there is a dearth, there is a shame, there is a guilt that is so deep and so shameful that only he, stooping low, will be able to clean them and change them. And isn't it interesting that when he gets to Peter, Peter says, uh-uh, no, you are not, you, my Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. There's something about the idea of this person that he reveres, he looks up to, doing something so lowly that he just recoils at. He does not want that kind of help. Why is it, by the way, that we have a hard time, many of us, asking for help? I mean, you know, like there's the old stereotype when people used to need directions about the people, guys who were driving never wanted to stop to ask for directions. But we can think of things more recent, like maybe you can think of time at work where you're given a project that you really don't know as much about as you need to. And yet it's the hardest thing in the world to ask someone, hey, can you show me what I'm supposed to do? Or maybe you found yourself at some point in some sort of financial difficulty and you have someone that could help you, but man, to say, I need some money, I need help in that way, is so hard. Why is that? I suspect at least part of it is there is a vision of ourselves that we want to hold on to, a vision of ourselves that we are people who can do it, that we are independent, that we're self-sufficient, that that we can do what we need to to keep our lives sane, because if we don't, who else will? And I think that's what's going on with Peter, too. Peter, he, he has to be the guy who does things. He's the guy who can lay down his life. He's the guy who doesn't need Jesus to wash his feet. And then Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you will have no part of me, Peter. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus kind of breaks the ego. There is this time way earlier where, where Nicodemus, this, this respected Pharisee teacher, comes to Jesus and, and with this kind of just awe-striking arrogance, comes to the Son of God and says, we know that you are from God. And I, I kind of get the sense that when he says that, he's expecting Jesus to kind of breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, that's really good to hear. But that's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He says, no, you don't. You, you don't. You, you can't See, you, you are not actually right now able to see the kingdom of God, let alone even to enter it. If Peter was someone who was defined by his ability to do, Nicodemus was defined by his ability to know, and Jesus just says, that's not it. Here's what you need, Nicodemus. If you want to see and to know, you're going to have to experience a new birth. You're going to have to be born from above. 
And it's not just Nicodemus that this was true of. Certainly it was true of Peter, it was true of disciples. In fact, if you're carefully reading through the Gospel of John again and again, we see there's something deeply wrong, not just with them, but with, with humanity. There's something deeply wrong inside each of us. That while we like to tell ourselves a story of, of us being capable, of us relatively doing it right, of us being self-sufficient, of us being in control, we're, we're telling ourselves a fairy tale that actually each of us, in ways deeper than we will ever realize, are compromised by a slavery to sin that needs to be dealt with. There is a need in each of us to be born from above. And this is what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. In the, in the coming weeks, as we go through 14, 15, 16, and 17, we're speaking of, of the new life that we are given through Jesus, something that is powerful and precious, that, that there, are, there are things going on inside of every believer that is greater than we realize or feel, and it is deeply encouraging, and, and all of that is true. But before we get to that point, we also need to realize that before we experience or can understand the kind of life we are given, that we also first need to recognize the kind of death that we need to die. That for us to live the life that we are given, we first need to have a kind of death to ourselves. Peter will go on at the very end, in chapter 21, when he is restored. Jesus will actually tell him how he is going to die to glorify God. And then at that moment, Jesus says, now follow me. Then he is finally ready to go where Jesus is going. But before then, something had to happen to him. He had to come to an end of himself through heartbreaking failure. He had to let go of this conception of Peter as the one who doesn't need Jesus to wash his feet. Peter, the one who can do it by himself. He need to die a kind of death and allow himself to be a different Peter, a Peter who is dependent in every way upon Jesus. For Nicodemus to be able to be the person who sees the kingdom of God and knows the kingdom of God, he had to let go of this vision of the person as him being one who understood it all and had to recognize that his only hope was in believing in Jesus and finding his strength and hope in him. He needed to die a kind of death. And this, this is the way that we are called to go. that we will not ever experience the Christ-filled life that we were meant for until we are willing to lay down the Christless independence that we so cling to. You and I might want to love, we do long to love, but unless Christ is in us and we are in him, we will never love in the way that Jesus has loved us. I can think of no better illustration of this, one that kind of sticks with me. I know I've, I've used it before, but I find it so helpful. And from Eustace Scrub and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, perhaps you guys, have, some of you have read that story. Um, Eustace is someone who, I mean, early on, he's just beastly. He's grumpy, he's cruel. In some ways, he represents the worst tendencies in each of us. And, and there's this time when he's in Narnia where, over, through a course of events, he becomes a dragon. 
And, and that draggingness in some ways suddenly makes his outside correspond with his inside. This is who he is. He is dragon-like. But after a time of at first liking being a dragon, he more and more realized that is not what he wanted. He wanted to change. He was, he was miserable. And eventually he encounters Aslan the lion. And Aslan brings him to this pool of clear water. And Aslan says to him, you will now need to undress. Which was strange to him because he didn't have any clothes, but he realized, oh, let's take off my skin. So he starts kind of like rubbing and pulling, and he's able to get scales and the skin off, and he feels like, yes, and then he sees himself in the pool, and he sees he's still a dragon. So he tries it again. He's working. He's pulling. He's ripping. He does everything he can, and he does it again and again, but no matter how deep he goes, there is still a dragon before him. And then Aslan says, I am going to need to be the one who undresses you. Which is terrifying to Eustace because he has sharp claws, and he does not look tame in any way. But he is so exhausted, he is so aware that he can't do it, that he says that he just laid back. He surrendered, you might say, and, and he said the first tear was deep. It felt like it went straight to the heart. He experienced great pain. There was a kind of death, you might say. But then, as one layer was peeled after another, he became a new boy, a boy who now not only externally but internally had, had a heart, had love, had joy. And I want to suggest to you that this, this is how it is. It doesn't matter if you have been a Christian for decades or if this is your first time even thinking about Jesus. The same holds true. That the way for you to experience the life that God has intended you for, the way for you to be able to love in the beautiful self-giving way of Jesus, only comes as you let go of the life that you think, the person that you think you are, and allow Jesus to do his work it is only as you surrender, as you experience a kind of death, an ongoing dying, that you will begin to experience the life that Jesus has for you through being born from above. And I want to suggest that this is not something that we just do once. It is an ongoing process, and that's why every week we do what we are about to do. Every week, we spend some time in response to God's word just acknowledging our sin and confessing our sins. And the reason we do this is, is this is another way that we can kind of have that Eustace-like posture of just submitting ourselves to God and saying, I cannot do it. I have failed. Because as we do this, as we allow ourselves to that point, we can hear Jesus speak to us the words of forgiveness and good news and saying, yes, but I have done it for you, and through me, you are alive. And so I want to invite us to do this right now, to spend some time just acknowledging who we are before God, where our failure is acknowledging our sin, and being ready to hear the good news of how God has loved us in Christ Jesus. I will lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time, but let's spend some time in silent prayer.